welcome back to Our Foundations. We are going to be discussing the modern history of government in today's episode. We have looked at the origins of all of the systems that we cover, and we have gone over those. We've looked at a case study on ancient Israel, and now it's time to get into more of the modern history. So on today's episode, we are going to talk about some political systems that began to be popular in our more modern history, that of socialism, communism, fascism, dictatorship, democracy, libertarianism, um, all these types of political systems that became popular and were getting tried out in this time period. We then will discuss some of the conflicts and debates that arise over the concepts of things like liberty versus equality or the community versus the nation or these types of conflicts and contradictions that end up coming up when you talk about how to govern a society. And you need to weigh these things and what is more important. Is it the rights of the individual or the rights of the community? And that needs to be addressed. We are then going to look at kind of what the philosophy ends up being as a whole, as an aggregate for most of the first world countries by the end of this modern history time period, and that'll wrap us up for this episode. So to begin with, we're going to start with political systems, and I kind of grouped these into three different groups, and that would be the collective, the man, and the individuals. So under the heading of the collective, we have socialism and communism. So let's start with socialism. It's regained some of its popularity as of late through people like Bernie Sanders, for example, in America, and a lot of European countries, especially the Scandinavian countries, have tended more this way. So what is socialism? Well, socialism actually can be many different things, but they all revolve around the idea of collective ownership and collective rights. It's all about the society as a whole. So under socialist policy, it is much more important to do what's right for the society and the group of people, the collective that is being governed, than it is to focus on the specific individual or a specific business or specific sector. So this can take market forms or non-market forms. So for a market form, that would be something um, that exists in the market, so like a business. So, for example, with socialism, the ideal would be that a business would be ran more by its workers and more by the people that basically keep the business running, make the business work, than it would be by one person up top that owns everything. So, again, it's more about the collective. It's more about the group, and that's what's more important. So if the workers are the ones doing the work, then they have a right to have a say-so in how the business is ran and how that works. And that's the socialist mentality there. Uh, the same is true when it comes to how people are from an economic perspective. So if you have people that do not have as much money, and then you have others that have way more money than anyone thinks that they deserve, the socialist mentality would be that, well, you take some of that money from the people that have way more than they need, and you give it to some of these people that don't have as much money as they need or you think they should have, and that kind of equalizes the economic scale in society. So instead of having billionaires on one side and then families that are having a hard time even making their rent every month, you kind of share the wealth, you disperse it, and this allows the people that don't have as much to be more on equal footing as those who do have a lot. So equality is a very big concept in socialism. It's all about equality of, of the group, of everybody in the group, and everybody should be on roughly equal footing economically in an ideal socialist system. And again, there's many different socialist systems, and they all have different ways of achieving this. But in general, it is all about the group and the collective and how to bring about equality among them. So I would like to go over a few quotes 
relating to socialism. So let's start with a few of the kind of pro-socialist quotes. There is nobody in this country who got rich on their own. Nobody. You built a factory out there. Good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry about that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory. Now look, you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. And that was a quote by Elizabeth Warren, who is currently in politics in America. Let's go back to Malcolm X. And he says, you show me a capitalist and I'll show you a bloodsucker. And that's kind of the general mentality typically with socialism is that it's the opposite of capitalism. And socialism is the way to go. Capitalism is evil. Another example of that would be we are socialists. We are enemies of the capitalistic economic system for the exploitation of the economically weak with its unfair salaries, with its unseemingly evaluation of a human being according to wealth and property instead of responsibility and performance. And we are all determined to destroy the system under all conditions. That was from Adolf Hitler. So those are some examples of more of a pro-socialism viewpoint. They all basically explain the gist of it, that basically capitalism is evil and bad, and too many people are focused strictly on profits and on money and on power, and we need to basically take control of this system and disperse that wealth, disperse that power to the common people who have been trampled on and pushed down. And so that's a general mentality. We may need to look at the other side of the equation as well. And so let's look at the anti-socialist quotes here. So here goes the first one. You cannot legislate the poor into freedom by legislating the wealthy out of freedom. What one person receives without working for, another person must work for without receiving. The government cannot give to anybody anything that the government does not first take from somebody else. When half the people get the idea that they do not have to work because the other half is going to take care of them, and when the other half gets the idea that it does no good to work because somebody else is going to get what they work for, that, my dear friend, is about the end of any nation." You cannot multiply wealth by dividing it. That was Dr. Adrian Rogers. Let's go back to the 1800s for this next quote, and that is from Frederick Bastiat. When plunder becomes the way of life for a group of men in a society, over the course of time they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. A more modern quote would be from Murray Rothbard. It is easy to be conspicuously compassionate if others are being forced to pay the cost. Another quote from Rothbard is, While liberals are in favor of any sexual activity engaged in by two consenting adults, when these consenting adults engage in trade or exchange, the liberals step into harass, cripple, and restrict or prohibit that trade. And yet, both the consenting sexual activity and the trade are similar expressions of liberty in action. So there's kind of the other side, and that would be that, you know, it's not right to take from one group just to give it to somebody else who didn't earn it and didn't deserve it versus the first group that actually worked for that money and that, you know, they have more of a moral qualm with this and say that that's not right, that's not ethical. Whereas the socialist view is to say that, well, it's not ethical for one person to have so much more than somebody else, and they shouldn't be able to do that, and then they shouldn't get the power and wealth associated with that. And so that's kind of the dilemma that's going on there with the socialist mentality. I want to insert a little side note here at this point, 
because there is a society and a group that fits in under the socialist mentality, but doesn't really fit in very well in the format that we have going on here. So I'll just input this side note here and mention them. And that is the Fabians. The Fabian Society was established in 1884, and the goal of this society was to establish democratic socialism through gradual reformation versus revolution. And so what they believed is that the ideal for a society was democratic socialism, and that this was best achieved if they would work behind the scenes if they would get their people in positions of power and slowly start to tweak things and slowly start to change things and slowly start to influence society so that over time they could steer governments and whole societies and nations the way that they wanted them to go. The Fabian Society is not a secret society. They did not try to keep information from people. They didn't try to hide. They didn't try to pretend like they didn't exist. They were heavily involved in the Labour Party in the UK early on, in the London School of Economics. They believed in eugenics for scientifically planned society. They just like to work in the shadows. They like to be out of the limelight. They like to be able to influence things and push things. To give an example, if The Fabians wanted to put a bill through the government that would, say, get the government involved in housing for the poor and have government-owned housing complexes. And let's say that did not exist in a certain government. Well, what they would do is they would get one of their members on one side of the aisle, let's say the left side, and that person would propose a bill that would grant let's say, $100 million towards starting these housing communities all around the country in the most needy areas, and they would be state-run and under government control with price restrictions, and that this is something that is needed, that these horrible, rich landlords are taking advantage of the common people, and the government needs to step in and do something and provide housing for these people. And so... This Fabian that's on the left side of the aisle would propose this bill. Now, right after that, one of their other Fabian members on the right side of the aisle would propose a contradicting bill that would say, yes, the government does need to get involved. We need to work on this problem. It is legitimate, but this is way too much. We really only need to put $10 million into a pilot project, see how it goes, and do this small-scale deal. Now, once these two bills are put forth, roughly in the same time period, then you begin getting this debate where Fabians can start influencing those on the left side of the aisle and say, well, you have to vote for this bill, you really need to, if not, the right side's going to get it, and we aren't going to get the money we really need, and you know, we're not going to be able to do what needs to be done to really help the people. And the Fabians then try to influence the right side of the aisle and say, hey, you really need to vote for this bill, because if you don't, then they're going to get this $100 million policy established. We can't afford this. This is ridiculous. We don't even know for sure how it's going to work. You have to vote for this bill that our guy on the right instituted. And so you get a debate that becomes, do we do a $100 million housing project for the poor Or do we do a $10 million project for the poor? So maybe you've noticed, but there is no debate about whether or not the government should provide housing for the poor and get into this area that they're not involved in now. Because this issue and this concept was shepherded by the Fabians so that they could get this policy enacted. Now, they really don't care if one bill gets agreed upon or the other one gets agreed upon because either way the government is getting involved in the sector and they know because they are educated and probably thought about it for more than two seconds that government always increases in size governments always increase in power so if the government gets involved even in a small way in a certain sector that scope will just grow and if the goal of the fabians is to institute 
democratic socialism where there is more state control and more equality and spreading the wealth around, then all they need is to get these things started and let the government take its natural course of growing and becoming bigger and larger with more control so that these ideas and these concepts that they want to establish, these socialist ideals, start getting enacted and start becoming part of the core of society. And you may recognize this type of politics because it does go on nowadays. The Fabians were the ones that kind of started this on a large scale, but many political parties nowadays use this where they take an issue and they basically totally twist it and they turn it into something totally different where instead of the argument being whatever the original issue was, it becomes an argument over these two fine little details that two people disagree on and then one might have said a cuss word to the other one and so they ignore the first one and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the point is, you basically distract the public, you get them focused on this one specific aspect, and then they basically forget that there should be a debate as to whether the concept should be initiated at all. And that is something that is done commonly nowadays. Communism came out of that same socialist mentality, but takes it way to the next level, takes it to the max here. And that was Karl Marx that came up with the Communist Manifesto that most people are aware of. And with communism, you take collective ownership to the extreme. So basically, the common class, the proletariat is what he calls them, they own everything. And what happens is that the proletariat takes control and they control the state the state then controls all the means of production, so all the businesses, in a sense, in the country, and distributes everything equally to everybody. And this distribution is so equal that in a society of pure communism, you don't even need money. There's no point to it because everybody just shares the wealth and shares the production. And, you know, it's this utopian society where everybody goes to work because they want to go to work. They're not forced to and they don't make any money. They just go and they do their part and then they receive the same as everybody else and everybody's equal. And that's kind of the idea there with communism. So I want to mention a few of the planks of communism from the Communist Manifesto. There's 10 of them total, but I'll look at just five of them. I'll look at half of them that you may recognize from today's society. The second plank is heavy progressive or graduated income tax. He believed that that was very important and that if you look at most of the first world countries today, that's what they have. Uh, the third plank that he thought was very important was abolition of rights of inheritance. So he thought it was wrong if a certain amount of wealth was passed along from one generation or one person to another who did not earn it or work for it themselves. They, he felt like they didn't deserve it. And so they should not be able to receive this inheritance and inheritance should not be passed along. That's another thing that's brought up, um, especially the Democrat versus Republican debates. A lot of that is heavy taxes on large inheritances. That's more the Democrat side. The Republicans say, let's not tax this money very much because, you know, it's someone did earn it. They already paid taxes on it and they are passing it on to their heirs and we shouldn't step in there. And so that's a big debate that's going on currently as well. The fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto says that there should be a centralization of credit by the state through monopolistic national bank. And we do have a monopolistic national bank in America. There is one in England. There is one in France. There is one in pretty much every major country now. And that is one thing that Marx believed was very important for the state to take control of everything. And we are actually going to touch on this much more in our next episode on the modern history of money, where we dig into the Federal Reserve and central banking. And that will be interesting. So we'll get there next time. The next plank I want to mention is a sixth one. And that is that the state should centralize communication and transportation and take control over these. Well, 
If you look in America, for example, you have the FCC, you have the FAA, you have the Department of Transportation. Um, Basically, you have all these state departments and agencies that handle regulation and control over communication and transportation. So we we do kind of have that. The final plank is another one that should strike a chord with you and you should recognize. That would be free education for all in government schools and abolish children's factory labor. So that's what we have. And most people nowadays completely agree with that, that there should be free education for everyone and it should be controlled by the government and there should not be any children that are working, but rather they should all be in these government schools. And so I wanted to highlight these because, number one, I want to show that we are currently living in societies that are much closer to communism than you would think. But number two, you might hear the word communism and be completely turned off by it and say, oh, that's horrible, you know, no one ever really wants that, that's ridiculous. But the reality is, there may be some aspects that you might actually agree with that you hadn't really thought of much. And so I wanted to kind of highlight these. Uh, And I think that kind of brings awareness to the reality of communism. It's, in some ways, a perfect utopian society where everybody's completely equal. And in other ways, it's a, you know, horrible dictatorship where no one has any freedom or control over themselves. Now, that's another aspect that I wanted to mention. In general, in history, communism does not seem like it could ever work without a dictatorship of some t- of some kind. Now, it could be a single dictator or a group of dictators, but you really need some centralized state control to get this going, to be able to organize and manage this all within the state, because the state owns everything, and they own all the businesses, they own all the distribution, they own it all, and you need a strong centralized control for that. Another interesting aspect is that Marx believed that the way to gain control by the proletariat in order to initiate a communist society is through pure democracy. He believed that democracy was the only way that communism could get established. And his thought was that the proletariat, the common workers, the common people, they make up the majority of most nations. And so when that's the case, and then you give a pure democracy where all those people are able to choose by a majority rule system who runs the government and how that government is set up, then basically all you need to do is win them over to the idea of communism, which is fairly easy to do with the common working class because you're saying, hey, we're going to take you from this common worker class status and bump you up to the status of your superiors, of the business owners, of people who will receive the rewards that your work is creating. And so that sounds really nice. And so he believed, Marx believed, that if you have a purely democratic society and you start sowing the seeds of this communist ideal, that that could be achieved, and that would be the best outcome for a society. That's all we'll cover for socialism and communism. And so we're going to change gears from the group and the collective over to the man. And the man would be the man singular, the one man in charge of everything. So this would be dictatorships and fascism. Now, fascism wasn't really a thing until around the early 20th century, and there are names that you would probably recognize, like Mussolini and Hitler, so surely you have heard of these people. Now, as far as a dictatorship is concerned, all that is is it's a form of government where one person, one dictator in general, has control over everything. They rule it all. They don't have a council that keeps them in check. There aren't these multiple political bodies that have to pass things back and forth to each other. No, it's one person. They have complete control over everything. They say it. It's done, period. And that would be a dictatorship. One person rules. Now, fascism is a form of dictatorship, typically. And what that would be is what Mussolini and Hitler ended up becoming, you have a system of government where one person takes control over the state 
and uses that control to basically very efficiently run the nation. Now, this idea came up out of World War One, and it was a major war culture. There was war going on, and war had changed where it involved civilians as well. It wasn't just soldiers fighting soldiers, but there were civilians getting involved that were getting thrown into the war. They were getting thrown in by their governments and forced into military service. Some were getting forced into the war because invading armies were taking over their village, and you know you don't have a choice then. And so you have this culture and society that looks a little different than what we have today. We're not in a war-torn time period right now in most of, let's say, Europe and America, but they were then, and they were coming out of that. And what they could see is that in order to mobilize for war and mobilize an economy and have a very orderly society, you have to have a centralized source of authority and power. And that's a must. You can't have these forms of government that take six months to make a single decision because by then you've already lost the war and you can't have that. That's ridiculous. So in order to be an efficient society, especially around the idea of war, but also when it comes to economic decisions and just orderly society in general, you really need centralized control and centralized planning. And so under fascism, you have typically one strong ruler that stirs up and rallies the masses and they fall in line behind them. They really agree with this leader. And let's use Hitler as the example. He was voted into power. People wanted him. They fell in behind him. He talked about how Germany had been put down, their economy had been hampered, the retributions put against them for World War I were too much, they were too strict, and if Germany was ever going to reach its former glory like they had a right to, they needed to come together and have this sense of national identity that they can rally behind and get back to their former glories. And that's what he was promising. He was promising this to the people, and that's what they wanted. They voted him in, and they got behind him and went in full steam ahead. And that was the fascist government that most people think of. Now, that did not turn out so well, and we all know that now. However, it's easy to see how that was very enticing when he started gaining popularity and got into politics originally. So fascism and a dictatorship, they also get a very bad rap. However, it is possible, if you look with an open mind, to see how there could be pros and there could be things that would be beneficial for a society when you have decisions being able to be made immediately and you have one person that can make a judgment call and things happen. It's very efficient. It's very effective. And that's the idea. The next two political systems we will look at involve the individuals. These are democracy and libertarianism. So we'll start off with democracy. And again, I want to start off with a few quotes, some good, some not so good about democracy from people that you may have heard of before. They're fairly famous. Let's start off with Nelson Mandela. He says, democracy is based on the majority principle. This is especially true in a country such as ours, where the vast majority have been systematically denied their rights. At the same time, democracy also requires that the rights of political and other minorities be safeguarded. So he has some good points there. The next one is Benjamin Franklin. Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. So he brings up this wise point that the masses don't always have everybody else's best interest in mind. And like Mandela said, you have to safeguard the minority in a democracy. Abraham Lincoln says, democracy is the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that is a popular one that most of us have heard before. The next will be Winston Churchill. He says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. 
And the final quote is Franklin Roosevelt. Democracy cannot succeed unless those who express their choice are prepared to choose wisely. The real safeguard of democracy, therefore, is education. We'll wrap it up with one final quote from Thomas Jefferson. We in America do not have government by the majority. We have government by the majority who participate. And so there you have a few good quotes that bring up a lot of good points about democracies. Democracy is great in that it allows the people of a nation to make decisions for their nation themselves. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a vote. And this is good. However, on the flip side, that means that you end up basically with mob rule. The majority wins. So you have this catch-22 where, yes, you want everybody to have a say-so in how their lives are ran and how their country is run. However, you also want to make sure that everybody's rights and their freedoms are protected. And so if you have 60% of the people that say, hey, we should have slavery, well, I'll guarantee you that there's a large percentage of people out there that don't want to be slaves. And so... In a democracy, you don't want to have these issues where the majority end up oppressing any minority group of any kind, and that's a legitimate concern. So you heard quoted multiple times that education is a key component there, that you have to have a citizenry that is educated, that is well-informed, that is seeking out the best for their society. Now, you also heard in Jefferson's quote, his second one, that we have a democracy for those who participate. And that's a very good point. In America today, the voter participation rate is somewhere around 50% for presidential elections, which is pretty atrocious. So no, you do not have the majority of people in America voting, or maybe you barely have the majority voting, but a very large percentage, roughly half the people in America just sit at home and don't really care to participate. Some of those are through moral objections, and some people are just lazy. And so you do end up with a positive thing out of this, and that is that Usually people who vote are at least slightly informed and they at least slightly know what's going on. And so that's good. Usually people that have no clue and really don't care, they don't vote anyway. And so, you know, that's kind of nice. But you just have this problem with democracy and there's no getting around it. And it's very hard to balance. How do you give everybody a say and everybody a vote? without these negative consequences of a majority rules system. And I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. That's just one of the problems that is inherent. Now, as we get into our next political system, this is a key focus, and that is in libertarianism. Now, we said both of these political systems involve individuals, and it's obvious for democracy, every individual has a vote. Every individual has these rights. Well, when you get into libertarianism, you go a little further into this idea of individual rights and individual freedom. So let me again do a few quotes and you can get a feel for it yourself as to what some people believe from the libertarian perspective. We'll start off with H.L. Mencken, and he said, When a candidate for public office faces the voters, he does not face men of sense. He faces a mob of men whose chief distinguishing mark is the fact that they are quite incapable of weighing ideas, or even of comprehending any, save the most elemental— men whose whole thinking is done in terms of emotion and whose dominant emotion is dread of what they cannot understand. So confronted, the candidate must either bark with the pack or be lost. All the odds are on the man who is, intrinsically, the most devious and mediocre, the man who can most adeptly disperse the notion that his mind is a virtual vacuum. The next quote comes from Lysander Spooner, no man can rightfully be required to join or support an association whose protection he does not desire. Now, let's go back in time to Benjamin Franklin. 
Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Let's wrap up with two fairly potent quotes from Murray Rothbard. And the first would be that taxation is theft, purely and simply, even though it is theft on a grand and colossal scale, which no acknowledged criminals could hope to match. It is a compulsory seizure of property of the state's inhabitants or subjects. The next one is, Libertarians make no exceptions to the golden rule and provide no moral loophole, no double standard for government. That is, libertarians believe that murder is murder and does not become sanctified by reasons of state if committed by the government. We believe that theft is theft and does not become legitimated because organized robbers call their theft taxation. We believe that enslavement is enslavement, even if the institution committing that act calls it conscription. In short, the key to libertarian theory is that it makes no exceptions in its universal ethic for government. And that, again, was from Murray Rothbard. So, as you could probably tell by those quotes, the libertarian ideal comes from the idea that every individual has rights and freedoms that they deserve, that are inherent to human beings, and should not be infringed upon no matter what the reason and no matter who is the one infringing, even if it's the government. So... You have the idea of taxation is theft. Typically, libertarians are very anti-war and believe in non-interventionist policies. They would look at, for example, current wars in the Middle East as being ridiculous because when you go and bomb a bunch of people halfway across the world, it tends to make that group of people not like you very much and want to retaliate. And um, this term was coined by Ron Paul as being blowback. So basically, when you go and bomb a city in Afghanistan, well, you're probably going to create a few people, we call them terrorists, that aren't very grateful that your country bombed their city and killed a bunch of their family members. And they will probably want to get revenge. And so they typically try to. And then we use that as an excuse to go back over there and bomb a few more cities and so on and so forth. Uh, same is true with uh, dictatorships. You have this rotating idea that basically there's this evil dictator in somewhere in the Middle East, usually lately at least, that is oppressing their people. He's a very bad person, a bad man, very evil. And what we need to do is take him over. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this small rebel force that exists in the area, and we're going to train them. We're going to arm them. We are going to fund them, and they are going to, with our help, take over this evil dictator. And so we do that, and we overthrow a dictator. We put in you know, whoever we want instead. And then a little while later, um, we realize that, you know, now that this one group is in charge, they actually are a little worse than the previous dictator, and this didn't really work out so well. And so we really need to overthrow them. So what we're going to do is look at this small rebel force that is in the area, and we're going to train them and fund them and arm them, and you get the point. Now, that came out of uh, Dave Smith's comedy routine, so i got to give him credit for that concept. But that is what we do typically in foreign policy, um, largely in America, but there are a lot of other countries that have very interventionist policies when it comes to foreign policy. And the libertarian idea is that that's probably not a very good idea and that there are a lot of unintended consequences. And so unintended consequences come in for economic theory as well. They would look at something like socialism and say that if you're putting really high taxes on the wealthiest people and on businesses, well, then you're going to incentivize those businesses and business people to either avoid the tax system or move to a different country or not really try so hard to build up a big business or make a bunch of money because basically government's just going to take it anyway, so why worry? 
And so what happens is you end up having businesses and people leave. You have wealth getting taken out of the system. You have companies and businesses not growing as quickly and not growing as fast. They're not as innovative because there's not as much motivation to. And so the unintended consequences of trying to share the wealth is that you have lower economic activity, which means there is less wealth to be shared. And so not only are you taking from the wealthy, but you are also hurting the poor because you have less jobs, you have less money, you have less consumerism, and this is probably not good. It does not actually accomplish the goals that you were trying to accomplish. And so those are some of the um, highlights from the libertarian school of thought. But overall, the point is that when it comes to government and a political system, from a libertarian perspective, you either have an extremely small government where some will grant you maybe to have national defense and some public works and maybe a court system. And that's probably as far as you are going to go from a libertarian if you're lucky enough to get that far. Most libertarians will say just no government and that the private sector pretty much always handles things better than the government. Look at the Postal Service versus FedEx, and there's a fairly good example. Look at how well the government runs things like education, and look at private schools. Uh, There are plenty of comparisons you can make. Basically, the government is not very effective. They're not very efficient. It's a big waste. And so if we have a purely free market society where businesses and companies and people are rewarded for their labors, don't have to share it, they don't have other people and other agencies that are pressing down on them, then that is what will create the best form of society. And the obvious argument against that would be that, hey, well, then you're going to have warlords that try to take over with the government not being there to put them in check, or corporations are going to do all this horrible stuff, pollution's going to go crazy because there's no one regulating them, and individuals are going to just be out of luck in the system because all this stuff is happening when there's no control, there's no restriction, there is no, there's no check to all these issues. And so, you know, this is horrible. This is anarchy and the world will, you know, all go to hell in a handbasket. So that's kind of the argument against the libertarian idea. So there's a lot more we'll get into. Um, I'm actually planning on doing a special case study episode on the idea of anarcho-capitalism. And so that would be, what is a society with no government? What does that look like? Is that even possible? How would that work? Things of this nature. We're going to do a whole study on that because that's a very interesting concept that does deserve some extra exploration. So that's pretty much all we're going to discuss about these political systems. That pretty much covers them all. And overall, we have a few conflicting ideas on how society evolves from the perspective of political systems. Now, the Marxist idea was that you have this transition from the hunter-gatherer stage to more dictatorships and complete control to republics to democracy to socialism and then all the way up into communism, and communism is the ideal, and that is the way that all mature and established societies will trend to go to. Communism is the ideal. That is the utopia that everyone is seeking, and that is the natural path for all societies. Now, you have a different idea um, on the other side of the spectrum, And so like F.A. Hayek, who wrote The Road to Serfdom and many other books on political theory and economics, he basically says that you have republics, which are really good, and then they kind of devolve into democracies, which bring up a lot of other issues there. And when you have this kind of mob rule in a democracy, uh, actually, Another quote, uh, this goes back to Plato. He says that democracy is mob rule, which is anarchy. 
And that was kind of his idea of the devolution of society. But back to Hayek, he believed that republics devolve kind of into democracies, which then lead to the masses voting in policies for socialism. And then anytime you have the state taking over control of different aspects of the market and of society, well, typically when they get their hands in one sector, then that throws off the market factors that influence a different sector. So when they get into, say, the production of corn, well, if they give subsidies to corn farmers because for whatever reason they're not happy with the way prices are, well, then that might create a conflict with wheat because maybe wheat is a substitute to corn in certain fields and certain uses. And so in order to stabilize that unintended consequence, then the government has to step in in the wheat market as well. And then they've got to do something there. And pretty much it's this, you know, you can see where this is going. It's a circle. It's a cycle where when the government steps into one thing, that throws off something else. Then they've got to step into that. And then that incentivizes people to act in a different way that they don't like and is probably bad for society. So then the government has to step in and regulate that. And so basically the idea is that socialism will always trend towards fascism or dictatorship. Um, and that may be a form of communism. You might have communism under fascism or dictatorship, but it doesn't necessarily have to. Basically, on the negative side is that you have a devolution of society that devolves into you end up with a dictatorship or fascism where the state has control over everything and everyone's freedoms have been proficiently stomped on and stamped down. And so that was his idea. You have these two conflicting opinions on how society evolves um, in relation to political systems. So as we move from this modern history time period of the 19th and 20th century into our more modern times of, let's say, the 21st century, you go from the liberal era, and this would be classical liberalism, which is more like libertarian thought, where it's all about personal freedoms and the concepts of natural rights and things of this nature, free markets. And this was really going full steam in the 18th and 19th centuries, where you had global trade taking off, you start having free trade movements, you start having markets growing and Uh, regulations are getting a little more relaxed, states are kind of backing off and letting economies grow and markets grow and businesses grow. And this is kind of the idea. And at the same time, you have common people that their rights are being stood up for. You have bigger pushes for things like democracies and monarchies are starting to fade away. And so this is the liberal era. And this is the idea of a classical liberal era. And we are moving from that into the liberal era, and this would be more the neoliberal era. This is the current idea of what you would probably think of when you you hear liberal. This is progressives. This is things like the gay rights movement and transgender rights and climate change and things of this nature where you want equality of the sexes, you want equality of economic status, uh, all this type of stuff. And this is more what we have moved into. It goes from the classical liberalism to neoliberalism, and that's more what we're getting into now. So there are some specific uh, dichotomies that are set up here, and they're things that you have to wrestle with no matter what, no matter what political system you're going from, no matter what concept or belief system you are coming from you always have to confront uh, a few different issues and conflicting interests. So one would be that of liberty versus equality. So liberty, I'm doing more classical liberalism here, and that would be freedom of the individual, liberty for the individual, that how I live my life is my choice, and that as long as it doesn't cause harm to anyone else, I have a right to choose how I want to live. And if I want to work really hard and make a bunch of money and then blow that money on nice cars and a fancy house and expensive food, I can do that. That's my right. And I am at liberty to do that. 
on the other side, you have equality. And this would be not necessarily equality of rights, but usually when equality is talked about in this day and age, it's economic equality, where you know it's not right for someone to make a billion dollars while someone two streets down is starving to death. You know, that's not right. We need to at least start balancing, at least on a small scale, that equality and kind of share the wealth, redistribute resources, that kind of idea. But liberty and equality are contradictions. You can't have both. In order to have more equality, you have to take away some liberty. In order to have more liberty, you necessarily have to allow for more inequality. And so that's a balance you have to figure out. And that's something that's still highly debated. On a similar note, you have this conflict between the individual and the community. So what's more important? Is it the community as a whole, or is it the rights of the individual? Similarly, on a bigger scale, you have what's more important, the community or the nation? And so you have these nationalist movements that have really hit full steam in the past uh, few years with people like Trump taking power and uh, similar movements over in Europe as well. And so, well, even South America. But this is the idea that the nation is the most important. And it's not about these little niche communities that, you know, are around and all these nations and all these little groups of people have their own little value systems. And, you know, who really cares about that when you have the whole nation and that's what's really important. And you have to be a patriot and you have to really get behind your country and Your country is more important than anything else and sacrifice for your country and, you know, this kind of idea. And then you have the flip side where you have these smaller communities, um, smaller groups of people and pockets of culture and pockets of society that have specific belief systems and specific goals and movements that they really believe in. Well, what's more important, the nation or the community? On a bigger scale, what's more important, the nation or humanity and the world? So you have that same idea. Is it this national pride and that you should take pride in your country, do what's best for your country? Or is it really the world? Should we do what's best for the whole world, for all countries? Uh, that's a tough one. Is it humanity or is it your country? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> and so that's one of the debates that goes on and still goes on and is a pretty big deal. So... Now, in our more current time frame, it seems like society has decided that we're going to have democratic socialism or nothing, and that if you don't agree with it, too bad. You are going to be forced to have democratic socialism. And so that is basically what's taken hold. Um, most, uh, most civilized and mature societies nowadays uh, believe it is their responsibility and it's their burden to spread democracy to the world and that we need to equalize everybody economically. And that's not just within a country, that's within the world as a whole. We need to bring up all these poor nations up out of poverty and really help them out, throw them millions, billions of dollars and uh, get them out of poverty. And this will be at the expense of some of the richer countries because, you know, they've got plenty, they can afford it. And again, it's more that socialist mentality. That's why I said socialist um, democracies or democratic socialism. And so that's kind of the idea that we have nowadays. Um, you see most of the intervention around the world from large powers, large nations, and usually that's what it is. You overthrow a dictator, you install a democracy, then you're probably not happy about how that democratic process goes. You know, it's probably rigged, so let's just throw somebody else in power. Um, as I'm recording this, you have an issue in Venezuela where, you know, Maduro was elected democratically, but, you know, a lot of people said that that voting process was kind of rigged, and so, well, the U.S. decides, hey, this other guy over here that's ahead of this assembly here, we're going to recognize him as the president of Venezuela from now on, and then you have a bunch of other nations that agree, and so they're recognizing this other guy that was not elected and putting down the guy that was officially elected, and you know, it's probably going to be a big mess, but that's what we do. Like that's, that's how our mature and civilized societies act nowadays, 
And uh, it's very interesting. It usually doesn't work out very well, but for some reason, we, we keep trying. And, you know, maybe one time it'll work. Maybe. We'll see. Didn't really work in Cuba. Hadn't really worked in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, bin Laden didn't turn out so well when we trained him. Uh, I, I just really don't know. I can't really think of any good examples. I'm sure there may have been one. I don't know. But that's really all there is to it there. Um, the point is, like, you know, what is good for society? What is best for society as a whole? What is best for humanity as a whole? What's best for a country? And you have to wrestle with these different conflicting concepts. It's something that you just have to do. There's no way around it. So who should choose? Is it the individual? Is it the group? Is it the experts? You could argue for all of them. And there are moral arguments for these different ones, like the libertarian moral argument that it is wrong to infringe on the rights of an individual no matter what the reason. You know, I can understand that. It's wrong for you to take my money. Even if you're going to give it to a homeless person, that's still wrong. Even if the majority of America says that you should take my money, you know, it's still wrong. It There's a moral component there. That taxation is theft mentality, um, it can strike a nerve. And there is something to that. There is a moral argument there that is legitimate. There's also a practical argument. And that practical argument is going to be different than the moral argument. Let's use on the opposite example that the practical argument is that there is a homeless man over there and he's not being helped and you're not giving him money, but you know, he needs it a lot more than you. So there is this practical aspect that he should have it. You shouldn't, you'll still be just fine. This guy's going to starve in the street. And that's a legitimate argument. So that's tough. Um, there are a lot of tough calls here. Now, are people responsible enough to learn and think and act in mass? That is a very good question. I don't really have an answer for that. That was debated a long time ago with Plato and Aristotle, and it is still being debated today. And there is no good answer. So I will leave you with... One last quote, since we have had so many of these lately, and this one is going to be a, another quote from H.L. Mencken about government as a whole. It goes like this. All government, in its essence, is a conspiracy against the superior man. Its one permanent object is to oppress him and cripple him. If it be aristocratic in organization then it seeks to protect the man who is superior only in law against the man who is superior in fact. If it be democratic, then it seeks to protect the man who is inferior in every way against both. One of its primary functions is to regiment men by force, to make them as much alike as possible and as dependent upon one another as possible, to search out and combat originality among them. All it can see in an original idea is potential change, and hence an invasion of its prerogatives. The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself, without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. And so, if he is a romantic, he tries to change it. And even if he is not romantic personally, he is very apt to spread discontent among those who are. So that's all we have for today. If you come back next time, we'll do the modern history of money, go over things like the Federal Reserve System and fractional reserve banking and things that may not sound very interesting, but extremely interesting topics when you see how these systems were instituted and how they work. It's very pertinent to your existence and your money and your finances. So I would highly recommend checking that out and understanding how money works and how banking works and where that came from. And we will do that next time. So let me give all the plugs here. We've got our website at ourfoundations.podbean.com. We've got our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ourfoundations. We're on Twitter at foundationpc.com. 
And we have an email address that you can reach me at anytime you like, and I will get back to you. And that is at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And all this is in the show notes. If you look it up, you'll see the links there and all kinds of things there. We've got a timeline. I've got potential stuff for season two on the Patreon page. There's exclusive episodes there for subscribers. There's different stuff on the website. Just check it all out if you're interested. There's resources, all kinds of stuff. And that's about it. So hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back next time. Please leave us a rating and give us a review if you have time. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.